What's up, Story Geeks? Thanks for joining us today on the Story Geeks podcast. I am Daryl Smith, the oldest geek in the room. And today we are digging deeper into the Lord of the Rings. Finally digging deeper into the Lord of the Rings. We've been talking about this forever. Joining me today is, of course, Jay Shear. And then our special guest today is Andrew Peterson. He is a singer-songwriter and an author, my favorite singer-songwriter. I've been following him for years, so I'm super excited to talk to him today. And uh, he is the author of the fantasy series, The Wingfeather Saga. It's a series of four books, and they are re-releasing the first two books in just about a week as you listen to this podcast with collector's hardcover editions. So we'll talk more about that. Thanks for listening in. The Story Geeks podcast is produced by the Reclamation Society. Also, we'd love for you to join the Story Geeks Club. We have a bunch of VIP tiers where you can receive additional content from us, but you can join the Story Geeks Club for free by joining the Story Geeks Facebook group. Just search for the Story Geeks on Facebook, find the group, and then request to be added. We promise to add you. (laughs) We'd love for you to join our community. Um, I mentioned before that we are giving away a couple copies of the book. Um, We will be giving away two copies each of the first two collector's hardcover editions of the books. So the first book on the edge of the dark sea of darkness and the second north would be eaten. So here's how you can enter to win those. We will be promoting this episode on Twitter. So go find the story geeks on Twitter and look for our, our tweets where we promote this episode. And we'll be doing this for a few weeks because this is a three week series. So go look for those tweets and all you have to do is retweet it. If you don't have a Twitter account, now's a good time to sign up for one. It's free. We're only going to do this on Twitter. So go do that. We will pick two winners at the end of the series, and the books will be sent to you via mail. So let's dig deeper into Lord of the Rings. Andrew Peterson, welcome to the Story Geeks podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is a blast to have you. I'm, I promise I won't gush too much, but I have to be honest and tell you that I am a huge fan of yours. I've been following your music since the first album, I've seen you live several times, and uh, it is a joy to talk to you today. Like first album as in 20 years ago, first album? Yes. Wow. Yep. I worked at a Christian bookstore at the time, and I bought it the day it came out. Amazing. <laughs> well, thank you for keeping up. Yeah. And by absolutely. the way, Daryl has this track record on our show of like saying, I think this is the coolest person to talk to. And then somehow they end up on the show. It's like, it's like every <laughs> dream guest he has how, somehow shows up on the show. I need to start a list or something of my dream guests. <laughs> it's so great to have you, Andrew. Um, I know that you also uh, have done a bunch of storytelling. And so we're really excited to dive into something like Lord of the Rings because it's so storytelling oriented. So thanks for being here. Yeah, and um, just real quick, we'll talk more about this um, at the end of the show too, but I just want to mention that uh, your fantasy series, The Wingfeather Saga, you're re-releasing the first two books in collector's hardcover editions March 10th, is that correct? That is right, and then books three and four come out in September. Fantastic, okay. And uh, we'll come back to that and talk a little bit more about those at the end too. So for now, should we geek out on Lord of the Rings? Let's do it. All right. Um, First question. The Lord of the Rings was originally published uh, between July of 1954 and October of 1955, 17 years after J.R.R. Tolkien first introduced us to Middle-earth with The Hobbit in 1937. And of course, they've remained wildly popular for more than six decades. So yes, we are going to talk about the film trilogy here. But before we do that, um, I just have to ask you guys, and Andrew, we'll start with you on this. How do you account for the enduring relevance of these stories? 
Yeah, I was thinking about that. I think there, there's a couple different ways to answer. One of, one of them is that uh, I think the, the best answer that uh, I have is that Tolkien wasn't just a fantasy nerd. He was mm-hmm. a scholar and a, a poet and a student of the written word. So there have been a lot of fantasies that have been written, obviously, between now and then. Um, but the ones that have this real staying power are the ones that weren't only good from a story standpoint, but the ones, uh, but they're ones that are good from a prose standpoint, like the actual um, sentence level writing of uh, of a of the Lord of the Rings, and I would even argue things like the Narnia books or Madeline Langle's stuff. Um, Walt Wongren stuff. The stuff that to me really stands the test of time is the stuff that was written not just by people who geeked out over the kind of accoutrements of fantasy, you know, elves and taverns and dwarves. Yeah. But people who actually were students of literature and story and uh, cared about more than just the club of fantasy novels. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. I'm going to start by saying um, I, ha- I heard a really interesting story about how the Lord of the Rings got famous in the first place. Uh-huh. I don't remember where I heard this. And I wish I could quote the source because it was such a good explanation of uh, not only how stories can grow into being like these world-renowned things, but also that you need a core audience to start with. And it turned out that Tolkien's to- core audience was one that he was pretty frustrated by because uh, it was actually mostly hippies because <laughs> they they <laughs> they read the books and they and they saw that they were they were you know uh, smoking the weed so to speak and all of these things <laughs> and they got really excited about it and Tolkien was kind of like well that's just a group of people who I don't think are getting into the right aspects of the story but look what happened after that it spread like wildfire across the entire globe and I think. When you talk about in the enduring relevance, I, I turned to my wife at one point in time and watching this like nine hours worth of content. And I go, what are, you, what are some of the, the Only themes? Only nine hours. So you didn't watch the extended edition. I watched some of the extended <laughs> editions, the first one. And then I switched over to the Netflix versions because they're such higher quality because um, I have the DVDs. But uh, if you look at all of the themes that appear, identity is huge, courage versus fear, addiction, the inherent depravity of man and how to overcome that, redemption, loyalty and friendship, resurrection and rebirth, power and corruption, faith, not to mention minor themes, female empowerment, sacrificing for the greater good, leadership, community, broken community, trust. I think that what Tolkien did in this story is that he included elements that made it so true to life for so many different people. It wasn't just about one thing that you could you know, grasp onto. It was about so many different things. It was a really lived in world with this, these massive bodies of people, but strong individual characters that were going through things that most people today can relate with just as much now as they could have then. Yeah. And I think that that's just huge. I think that's huge too. I, and I, I think part of it too is that Tolkien did, and I, like in the n- tiniest way I can relate to this. Um, <laughs> it's always <laughs> have to be careful that like the Wingfeather saga is, is in no sense do I think they are as timeless or as amazing as the Lord of the Rings. Um, but like the experience of writing a novel, a series that's four books long, that is uh as a, as a Christian who happens to believe that like one of the ways that we um, uh, bear out the image of God is this sub-creative tendency that human beings have. Like we just are, we have this delight in making things 
and from a novel writing standpoint, like world building is a part of that thing. And so reading on fairy stories, which was the essay Tolkien wrote, um, I think in the thirties. So it was post Hobbit, but pre Lord of the Rings. Um, it was his theology of storytelling and how fairy tales work on us and why they work the way they do. And it's like, there's a robust theology that underpins what, what he was doing. And that's not to say that he had like this, this, uh, you know, in the, in the pejorative sense, an agenda, like he wasn't writing from a, from a place of, I have this, this idea that I'm trying to get across. Like he was truly trying to serve the story and just build a world and let the inherent sub creative, like tendency that he had as a scholar and a lover of uh, myth, uh, and of story and of prose to sit down and just go, I'm just going to make something and, and allow this thing to grow in a, in a very, um, spirit led way. And so what you get when that happens, when that, when the writer is, is not trying to steer the ship as much as he is kind of following the breadcrumbs. Um, what, what happens is that like almost by accident, you end up touching on all those themes that you just listed. You know what I mean? Like you just, as a, as a member of the human race, right. (laughs) We all experience at some level, those things, but but because he, his um, his love of fantasy was underpinned by this true belief in in the gospel and and in the the way you know uh, story works like story with a capital S, like it allows the thing to like have all of the like the the uh, the jewel has all these facets you know that like light sprays out in all kinds of directions so you can you can pick any one of those and dig into like what, how the lord of the rings exemplifies it you know um, and i think that's that that's like one of the best things about novel writing and one of the things that is missing from so many um bad books <laughs> <laughs> fair enough well, the sheer content about Middle-earth in these books is staggering, obviously. I mean, we're not even talking about the Summerillion, but that exists too. <laughs> and, um, but we're here to talk about the film series specifically. So uh, what is it you guys think works about the film series at its core? What do you think that series of stories is about? Jay, why don't you start mm-hmm. on this one? Well, I would go back to... Um, well, first of all, I just have to put one note out there. To, as, as good as... Tolkien's prose is and as great as a storyteller he is and as much as I enjoyed those books as a kid I still feel that Peter Jackson's trilogy is superior and I know that to some people that's like oh don't say that (laughs) yeah 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 um because I just feel like he took all of the perfect elements from what Tolkien had done and was able to really drill into them so to me at its core this story is about basically um the first couple things that I talked about in the previous answer to my question, yeah. like it's about uh, uh, ultimately identity and trying to figure out where we where we find our identity and and how we can overcome some of our own weaknesses. And sometimes when we can't overcome those weaknesses, having community around us that can help us get through some of those things. Um, I think it's really instructive, and we'll, I'm sure we'll dig into this more either in this podcast or others, but it's really instructive that when we turn to the negative aspects of our identity or if we don't acknowledge the fact that we're not perfect or that we have weaknesses, then we really 
hurt ourselves in the long run. And that's very evident in every single one of these characters. Most of the characters realize I can't touch the ring because if I do, I will become a monster. Right. Um, but those that do touch it become a monster. Like, there's yeah. no there's no way around it. Like it's just what it is. And even having uh, even the way that the the film trilogy ends, it doesn't end on a wow that character took one heroic. No, the circumstances just worked themselves out. Yeah. You know, like and so I think that that at, at its core, this this is basically taking these really rich characters and saying. They all have these severe weaknesses. And so to to your point, Andrew, there is a spiritual part of this that will never work because these characters aren't strong enough. Mm. Um, there has to be something beyond them. There has to be something that's orchestrating things uh, and helping them along the way in ways that they would never expect. And I think uh, that's why it works so well, because it's so close to what we experience. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree with some of what you said. Um, I will say just at, at the outset, um, the book is is magnificent and the movies are as good as they could have been. That's my humble opinion. Um, I, I just finished, I just read The Lord of the Rings for the fourth time last year and it was my favorite experience of reading the stories and like the books, the like it, it it's the one I, I think it, I'm not a big rereader, but that that is one series that I just find myself kind of going back to again and again. And every time it unfolds a little more of itself to me. And that's one of the joys of rereading is that not only do I, I notice different things because I'm a different person <laughs> uh, in many ways uh, while I'm reading the book um, and the movies like, you know, the, I, I went back and tried to rewatch them and I feel like they were, I was surprised by how dated they were in the first place. And second, I was also su pleasantly surprised at how right they got some stuff. Like they re like having gone back and reread the books after I had seen the trilogies a few times. I was like uh I was like wow, they really paid a lot of attention to the nuances that Tolkien was trying to put into the thing. But in the end, there's just a difference between 9 hours of film where, where the director, you know, is, you know, he's guiding the, the lens of the camera. Uh, like, you can only focus on so much in a movie. And I think they did the very best job they could have possibly done, really. Um, but the book is so much broader, I think, and, and richer than the thing. But one of the one of the things that I love about what you said is, uh, and I don't remember where I, when I first realized this, or if somebody pointed it out to me, but that, that, that the main hero of The Lord of the Rings, which is Frodo, fails in his mission like the hero fails like so so who the question is who who is the real hero of the lord of the rings and the answer is the author like which i would i would argue is god in tolkien's theology and so and there's these little clues to this being the, the case like um you know when gandalf tells frodo don't kill Gollum," you know like he was like no i, I have a sense that like his part of the story isn't over yet, but Gandalf didn't know for sure, right? And he was kind of like, I, and and then as the reader, when Gollum shows up at the end and uh, ends up being the one who happens to accidentally destroy the ring um, because of the pity of the people who didn't kill Gollum, like you realize that the real, the reason the ring was destroyed is because the author was fashioning a story um, that was a you catastrophe, which is another whole uh, can of worms, um, that, that it's the kind of story that Tolkien was trying to tell. And it's the kind of story that he believes was at the core of the universe. Um, which is like, do you guys, have you guys talked about the U catastrophe thing on the pot on the podcast? Before? No, we haven't. We haven't. 
so this is wonderful and this has been one of the like most like uh paradigm shifting kind of realizations about the way story works for me um tolkien talks in um in on fairy stories that essay he coins the word u catastrophe which it's it's the word catastrophe with an e and a u at the beginnings and and that prefix means good so it means a good catastrophe so tolkien said in a story in the best kind of stories um a catastrophe is like as we all know it's when everything's going great and then it all falls apart a u catastrophe in a story is like the lord of the rings which is a story where there's this brooding brokenness that seems to be fracturing deeper and deeper and deeper so as the story goes you the reader are left with this feeling that there is no way we're going to win there's no way that the good guys are going to do this how in the world can this work out well and then you that you come to the climax of so there's like a a, a, a little picture of view catastrophe is the battle of helm's deep which is when uh you know there's this sea of orcs and Aragorn and uh, Theoden, and they, they all kind of realize there's no way they're going to win this battle, that their only hope is just to go out fighting, right? And, right. and then they look and they see Gandalf on the white horse, and, and uh, there's that, they remember that Gandalf said, look, you know, look to me on the whatever, the morning of the third day, whatever it was. And, uh, and that's when you as the viewer of the movie or the reader of the book, you feel something, right? In your heart, you feel the the relief of, oh my goodness, the unlooked for um, rescue, right? We thought that it was over, and then there's the opposite of a catastrophe. There's the moment that Tolkien called the sudden joyous turn. So that's Gandalf showing up at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Well, that's the end of the Lord of the Rings, too. You see Frodo in the book, you know, he makes this turn, and you realize he can't do it. What in the world, how is this story going to end well? And all of a sudden, the veil lifts, and the author shows that there was a reason that that Gollum was allowed to live, right? And then the ring is destroyed. So Tolkien went on to argue that that the incarnation of Jesus is the eucatastrophe of of the creation story. It's this unlooked for rescue that that nobody could have predicted that it would have gone down the way that it did. And then he says that the resurrection uh, is is the eucatastrophe of the incarnation story. That that you know you think that the story is over when Jesus is dead, and then on the third day, there's this thing that happens that nobody foresaw, right? And so that's that's the kind of story that he's telling. And in that kind of story, it's not the characters in the story that are the real agents. Um, their willingness to, to try is good, but the real hero of the story is the author that shows that he had this massive, beautiful framework that he was operating th through. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I actually have a really good example of it from a different uh, fandom because it's not quite, it's not this exactly the same. But um, one of the reasons I love Rogue One, the Star Wars film, is because of that same reason. It's like, well, this is a catastrophe, except that they got the last thing that they needed. Now, you could argue that it wasn't the uh, the narrator, the overarching narrator, but those things don't happen if those people don't have hope and those people hope in something bigger. And so that's another example of, I love that that philosophy i love it too the the triumph of hope over despair is the, is yes. the whole thing and so the uh and the man that the avengers movie uh, that mm. came out is what is a is pitch perfect you catastrophe at the end when uh what's his face thanos wins right mm. yeah and you think how is this going to end well and then all of a sudden you realize that that 
everybody starts showing up, you know, that there was a resurrection, quote unquote. And all of a sudden there's this unlooked for rescue that shows. And I just remember crying in the theater going like, this is it. This is, <laughs> this is Gandalf on the white horse at Helm's Deep. Like they did it. They pulled it off. So I love that stuff, man. And that, there I saw, this is how nerdy I am in the, uh, in the, uh, extended edition DVD set. There's all these mini documentaries, you know, and uh, yeah. I was watching all those with my kids. And there, there was some scholar, some Tolkien scholar that is they interviewed, and he talks about the triumph of hope over despair. And and they show the clip of of uh, what's his face, um, uh, Denethor, um, when he throws himself off the uh, the the cliff at minus oh, two, yeah. you know? yeah. and he looks out, and again he sees nothing but darkness. And he was like, "There's no way to win. Choose how you'll die." And he throws himself off. Mm, well, this yeah. scholar points out he was like, he was like, the thing about despair is despair presupposes that you know the end of the story, mm. and because we are creatures of time, we we can't say with absolute certainty that we know the story is going to end badly. Right. Which means that there's always reason to hope. There's always the possibility that the author of the story has a eucatastrophe in mind. So, so there's never a good excuse to completely give up hope. Mm, yeah. That's awesome. I love, uh, you talked about Denethor. One of my favorite parts is, um, you know, you see sort of a good, I, I wrote a question about this, but you've already answered it. So <laughs> we'll leave it at that. But, but I want to call out this dichotomy. You see the difference between Gandalf and Denethor in Fellowship. You see Gandalf when he's about to fall into the pit with the Balrog and he tells everybody, fly, you fools. Mm-hmm. You know, like he still has hope even in that minute. And then later on, at the, when the Battle of Minas Tirith is really heating up and Denethor is about to burn his son alive because right. he's so hopeless and gone. Um, you hear him say, why do the fools fly? Better to die sooner than late, for die we must. Right. So just those two different... I hadn't even thought about those two things being um, two sides of the coin, but that's perfect, yeah. Um, okay, so, um, you know, we have limited time here, and we're talking about three of the longest movies in history, so... <laughs> I've written basically one question to touch on each film, so we'll kind of go through that real quick here. Um, in The Fellowship of the Ring, we're introduced to the Fellowship, and then at the end of the film, we see Boromir fall, we see the rest of them splinter apart. So um, what does the Fellowship mean to that story, and then what does them breaking up mean to the story? So, Jay, you want to start on that one? Uh, sure. Um, I think that there is the thought process that we have that is like, if only we had enough resources, if only we had enough people that we could throw at this thing, in this case, enough heroes to throw at it. Cause all these people are awesome, you yeah. know, like um, that we could perhaps overcome something. Right. And I don't think that there's a, I don't think there's a fallacy in that line of thinking per se, because I don't, I think that community is really important and fellowship is really important. And if, if Sam had actually been one of the ones that had abandoned Frodo, not abandoned, but left Frodo as opposed to sticking with him because of what Gandalf had previously told him of like, stick with him. Yeah. Um, I don't think Frodo would have made it. So fellowship is really important, but I think one of the things that storytellers do, and I think that, um, Andrew has already explained how, uh, Tolkien does it so well is that you continue to put your characters in the worst places possible. And why do you do that? Because, I think in this case, as it relates to fellowship, we enter the world alone, we exit the world alone. And to make that point more severe and to showcase the inherent issues with 
um, not being able to overcome things just because you're in community. Um, community is is an important thing, but it is not the end all be all. Um, you have to then splinter that apart. So this 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 group of heroes that is essentially saying we are going to take up this task and by this through this by accomplishing this task we will accomplish victory. Basically, then Tolkien is saying, yeah, you can get a, a certain w- amount of the way there, but you need something more than that, and yeah. you don't know what that something more is until the end of the whole series, until we understand what Andrew just talked about with that theory of storytelling. Um, but I think that that's kind of two cases. One, it serves the story because it puts everybody in more danger and forces them all to deal with their own personal identities. Um, but also because I think there's a there's an inherent truth there that we can't always have community around us. Sometimes we're slogging through things sort yeah. of by ourselves. And he wanted to showcase that too, is my guess. What do you think, Andrew? I, well, I think that you're right on. the uh, the. There's also this sense in which, uh, like, yes, the fellowship is broken, but in another sense, the fellowship was never broken because they were all still fighting for the same thing. Like they weren't in the same vicinity of each other, but each of them trusted that the other still held on to the the end goal that they started out with, you know, and they had to trust that, like, I don't know what Aragorn's up to right now, but I'm just going to believe that he's out there doing his thing. And, you know, they didn't know what happened to Frodo and Sam, but they were like, we're just going to have to trust that they're still fighting this battle. So I, isolation is, is, uh, is there, there's a kind of isolation, but there's a unity of, of, uh, of mission that, that the fellowship held on to, which uh, on a purely storytelling standpoint, like one thing that you're getting at, um, which I, I totally resonate with is the idea. I think it was Philip Pullman. I only read the first, the golden compass and I thought it was a decent book except for the massive stupid agenda that he had. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the, the ball, like worst example of what, how agenda can ruin a good story. Um, but the, uh, the, he said, I think it was him, maybe even Stephen King and on writing, uh, said that you have to kill the parents. Have you ever heard this before? Uh, yeah. Like in stories for children, like if you think about it, so many of the great stories where the kids are protagonists are, are the kids are orphans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a foundational principle at Disney, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's really hard to tell a story where the, the main character is a kid and has any kind of agency when they can always run to their parents to fix every problem. Right. And so it's like either the parents are villains or they're absent and the kid is kind of alone. And that's uh, when, when you're telling a story, it's, it's hard to like come up with a scenario that puts where the stakes are high enough when the parents are always there. Right. And so I found that in the wing feather books, not to keep steering it back, back to my books, but it's, it's like, that was the experience I had. And I really wanted to tell a story in which, um, the, the things worked best when the family was a unit, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't want to make it so that the family was dysfunctional pointlessly and that there was this, you know, one of the, one of my annoyances in stories like, uh, the Lemony Snicket books is like the grownups are all idiots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The kids tell them like, no bad things are happening and the parents aren't listening or they're just kind of <laughs> oblivious or they don't care what the kids are saying. And I'm like, that's actually not my experience as a parent. When my kids tell me something bad's going on, I really listen to them. Right. I want to like help them fit. So it didn't ring true to me. So I wanted to tell a story like that. But by the time I got to book two, I realized that like Janner, my main character, like in order for him to grow, he has got to be sent out on his own somehow. 
Like, and man, as in the writing of the story, the, when the moment happened in book two, when Janner was separated from his family and he had to like find his way on his own, like the story began to really find its legs. And so I think that's part of what happens is you, your characters have to be able to like run out of options. Like I can no longer turn to somebody else to fix my problem. I have got to make a choice here and, um, the stakes have to be high. Yeah. What I love though is, um, and I see this in your books and in the Lord of the Rings, but, um, there is a sort of family presented, right? Like, mm. like per specific parental units may not be there mm. in their entirety, but there is a family, there is a fellowship, you know, Andrew, there is the Igaby family, but each and every one of them is imperfect in their own right. And they're going through their own struggle to support each other and stay together, even though everybody's flawed. And uh, so I love that picture too. You see it in this, you see it in that. So Gandalf is like default father. You know? yeah. <laughs> like he's, that's who he is. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So when he's gone, you feel this like, oh my goodness, what are they going to do? Or when yeah. Dumbledore dies, you know? Um, yeah. you, you feel that like, oh man, things just got real. Yep. Okay, let's move on to the two towers. Um, in that film, we see more of Sauron's multifaceted approach to destroying all who refuse to stand with him. Um, Isengard is sort of operating in plain sight outside the Black Gate, uh, while Sauron is mysteriously amassing his forces behind it. So um, I'm curious about that tension between what is revealed and what is concealed. What does that tell us about evil in this story and in the real world as well? Andrew, you want to tackle that one? Oh, my goodness. This is one of the questions I was afraid you were going to ask me. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> to really answer that question, it would require like a thesis paper, I think, because it's a great... Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Fair. I like to make it hard. That's my job, right? Uh, what? Here's where my brain went when I read that question. I was thinking about um, a few things. One of them is that um, in, in like a lot of old fairy tales, one of the, the strengths of that kind of story is that um, there's a hard line between good and evil, like good looks like good. Evil looks like evil. We're fighting dragons, you know? Um, and, and I think there's a lot of value in that and showing that evil is an actual thing. But as you grow up, uh, a lot of the books that I, I then began to love were books, um, where you realize that the evil isn't always out there somewhere. The evil is actually in me too, that I, the brokenness, it's easy to talk about the brokenness of the world and forget that we are a part of that world, right? We are a part of the broken, we are culpable um, in, in that brokenness and to acknowledge that in the story. So there's a sense in which it's kind of like, there's the Sauron that's out there that we all know is evil. And then there's the the more rational kind of uh, Saruman evil where it's like, hey, the only way to survive is to join forces or, or to, to toss my, uh, my conscience out the window because there's a greater good than doing what's right surviving is the most important thing. Right. And, and I like that goes so against what I happen to believe is true about the universe. And especially in these like political times when everybody's drawing these hard lines where it's like, um, it's like in order to win, we have to make these compromises. And that's just not the way that I understand what the Bible tells me about the, what the way the world works or what Jesus talked about. Like the, uh, the idea and Faramir, 
And I think this is in the two tower, so I don't want to jump the gun if this... Oh, it's fine. Jump away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite dichotomies in the story is the difference between Boromir's philosophy and Faramir's philosophy. Yeah. Boromir is the one who says we should use this power. Like, we can use the enemy's weapon against the enemy. And then there's this great moment where Faramir says, I would rather lose the war than use the enemy's weapons. Like, I would rather hold on to goodness, even if it seems like uh, that means that the enemy is going to win. There's something more important than victory in this small sense. There's the, the victory of the human heart that is what's really at stake. And there's this great, great movie that I hope all of you guys and your listeners go see called A Hidden Life, which came out uh, in December, I think. Terrence Malick, who made a hit... Uh, the New World and Thin, yeah, Red, Thin Line, Red Line, yeah. All those movies. He's he's a, happens to be a Christian. Made this movie about this this guy. It's my favorite Malik film. It's it's just this profoundly beautiful film about true story about a guy named Franz Jager's daughter who was an Austrian during World War II who because of his faith was called up to fight and he he couldn't do it. He was like I I can't swear allegiance to Hitler because I so fundamentally disagree with him but all of his community was saying what about your family you know you're going to go to jail and your family's going to suffer like there's a greater good than you know just say the words it doesn't matter if you swear allegiance in your god sees your heart and he just his conscience won't allow him to do it and he ends up being executed um rather than swear allegiance to Hitler. and I, the whole time i was watching i was like this is the lord of the rings this is boring they're <laughs> saying like it doesn't matter what your the words your mouth say like you can be a medic in the war it doesn't matter oh, none of these things really matter um but like really they do like the real battle battleground is the battleground of the heart and so and the, the theme of the lord of the rings is like even if the enemy wins we're still going to go down fighting for what is right and so Saruman to me exemplifies the, the other, the more pragmatic, um, like I'd rather survive and, and then, uh, like the only way to survive is to join forces with the enemy. And I feel like there's a lot of that in the water these days. Um, but, uh, but one of my favorite parts of the movie, A Hidden Life is that several times in the movie, the, the authorities say to this man, um, uh, what do you think you're trying to prove here? Like, why are who is ever going to know what you've got? You're going to, you're going to die and nobody's ever going to tell this story. Like you're not changing anything. And he just kind of has to go, I, I don't know. I just, all I'm doing is what my conscience will allow me to do. And I'm willing to die for that. And the beautiful irony of it is that now 60, 70 years later, we're all watching a movie <laughs> where none of the people, none of the actors in the original story could foresee that a movie would be made about this humble farmer in Austria. And now his story is being told. And so that's a kind of eucatastrophe in my mind. Um, but that's, that's, I think, one of the themes of The Lord of the Ring is that there is this goodness in the world, and we can't use the enemy's weapons to fight that battle. Yeah, that's really good. I, I would, I would um, also just draw a couple more tie-ins there that I think are very similar. Um, one is that, and I, I'm not a Tolkien scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but much has been made of, his, of Tolkien's observation, uh, observations during World War II and how those things influenced what he put into Lord of the Rings. And I think there is a direct comparison here to saying, well, you know, Saruman might be Hitler 
or Mussolini or some somebody who's trying to take over. But what's behind that? Like what what's the thing that you can't see, right? What's what is the what is the belief system held by these people that control massive armies that want to destroy? Uh, why do they hold those belief systems? Why are they why is Hitler eradicating Jews, right? Like what's going on behind the scenes that we can't see right in front of our face and therefore it makes the fight even more difficult because we, we are painting these people as bad and they certainly are doing bad things. But behind that is something even worse almost. And I think that that, that gets into spiritual perspectives about what guiding forces there are in the world today. So I think that that could be a, a, a big part of it um, for me is just looking at it from that angle and saying, Okay, there's these, there's what you know in front of you, but there's also this subversive aspect of like what you don't know and what's guiding those things. And I do, I do think that that now this is not necessarily a Tolkien esque thing, but I do think we need to in the real world check ourselves before we assume that the person who doesn't agree with us is being guided by some dark thing that we can't see. Because <laughs> yeah. sometimes we do that too, um, and I don't think that that's a good call. I think we need to understand the people first and look for redemptive aspects of things first before we go to war, basically. Um, but yeah, I would agree with that too. And I think that what you were saying earlier about how the, the, the ring exposes our, our own brokenness, you know, like, the, it, yeah. like we all become monsters when we try to use the enemy's weapon. Um, yes. and so the, but, but Tolkien does a great job of balancing that, uh, in Boromir's character because the death of Boromir is one of the great moments in that, in the whole thing. Right. And so you yes. see this deeply flawed character redeemed right you you see him come to terms with his own brokenness and realize the error of his ways so so i think that like um to, like like you're saying it does it doesn't do any good to like make a, a really uh, straw man villain out of anybody who disagrees with us right uh, without also going you know what i'm also susceptible to the temptation of the ring in a deep way. yes you know what i mean so yes. the enemy is not necessarily the other people the enemy is the ring and who made the ring. <laughs> yeah. Um, real, real quick, in the interest of proper credit being assigned, I have to say that my wife helped me write that question. Nice. <laughs> my wife, who has two master's degrees and a doctorate. So, <laughs> so um, and a huge sense of compassion because she married me. So, let's move on to uh, the return of the king. One of my favorite quotes is Aragorn's speech when they're about to storm the Black Gate. He says, Sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers... I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. And he goes on to say more inspiring things. But um, my question is, why is the unity of men specifically so important to this story? And if, you know, if Frodo had successfully destroyed the ring, but Aragorn had failed to unite Rohan and Gondor, would the story have still looked the same? Would mm -hmm. we still have that great sense of satisfying success? So, um, Andrew, what do you think? Um, well, I think I'm going to I'm going to default to C.S. Lewis on this one. There's a great uh, moment in, I think it's in Prince Caspian when Lucy is talking to Aslan, and she she's like she's got some big regrets because she chose one thing instead of another and she's like oh no what what would have happened if if i had done this instead of that and gandalf tells her it's not for you to know what would have happened like um but only to like it's kind of like what what gandalf says to frodo is right all who live to see such times you know say the same thing there's something in me that kind of like le not recoils that's too hard of a word but 
wondering, uh, playing the thought experiment about what would have happened had Aragorn lost or if this had happened or that had happened where I'm like, all I, all I know is what happened in the story. You know what I mean? (laughs) So Tolkien's showing us something by what actually happened in the quote unquote history of, of middle earth. And so I don't know how to answer that question. Um, all I know is that he, in, uh, in his abandon to the spirit while he was writing the story, told the story where this thing happened. So it's like, these are the terms and I, I'm kind of wary of monkeying with them too much. Mm. <laughs> Fair mm. enough. What do you think, Jay? I would harken back to the, to the World War II elements again, because I feel like what he's basically saying here is if we don't look at humanity as being one, one thing that needs a lot of work because we're all depraved, <laughs> obviously, which is told in the individual parts of the story, but even greater if we don't unite and if we don't unite to face off against the evil that is inherent in the world, then we're in really, really big trouble. And so it's not only characters dealing with their identity and choosing the right identity and failing to choose the right identity despite the spiritual uh, influence um, of the of the outcome. It is also about us saying, well, we need to still band together to make sure that evil doesn't prosper, right? And and I think that that's a big component of, of uniting men. It, it also, I think, is something that is sort of, this is me totally interpreting this, right? But yeah. a writer such as Tolkien looking upon the scenario that he looked upon and, and just finding a whole lot of despair in it. Because if you look at, you know, I think, there's there's statistics that would showcase today that we have like higher anxiety and depression rates than ever before like in in recorded history at least and i think about this and i think of like we i think that that's primarily relative to our the human brain and the amount of information that it can take in and we just are taking in far too much information because if you look at the actual safety that we experience today we're in a much better world than tolkien was as he was probably writing these books or at least right Mm -hmm. before he was writing these books and the amount of despair that he had to see of the world at war, the entire world that could come crumbling down around itself. You, then you even see the United States unleash nuclear technology that could literally wipe the planet out, right? Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of despair there that he's basically saying, there's a basic cry out in here saying, if we don't, we're going to all be extinguished. And then he also has as we've been talking about this deeper spiritual thing of thank God we have something deeper because if we didn't, we'd probably all be screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Um, We are just about out of time. I just want to throw one more quick question out there. Andrew, this is one going to be specifically for you. Um, Obviously sharing stories is a big deal in the Lord of the Rings. It's a necessary part of that journey. And I think the three of us here would definitely argue that that's true of real life, too. So for you specifically, um, talk a little bit about what storytelling means to you and how it led you to write the Wingfeather saga and all that great stuff. Well, I I, uh, grew up with this, like, super nerdy love of stories, but didn't really know what to do with it. Um, I I want... I. I think it started with probably the Narnia books and then the Lloyd Alexander Pride and Chronicles when I was a kid. And then that led to Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms and then sci-fi stuff and uh, all kinds of business. I was, I was way into Batman when I was a kid. So I, I planned to go to uh, Savannah College of Art and Design and study illustration so that I could then go work for DC. And like 
like when interviewed my senior year, that's how into it I was. And around that time is when I realized that girls were more interested in uh, guitar players. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it, like I was a, a a nerd before it was cool to be nerdy, you know. And so, um, so anyway, all that to say, music kind of took off. But then the, I realized a few years into my music career that the thing that I loved the most about the kinds of songs that moved me were, was this story, this narrative aspect, this uh, like the actual nuts and bolts of a story that's unfolding in a song, and you know the the kind of um, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I I loved that, and then continued to read books, and so as a as a Christian, like I actually looked at the Bible and realized that the Bible was, I think, best understood as a story, and then not only that, I think our lives are best understood as stories, and so story just seemed to be like the the dna of of kind of the whole deal to me and so um so i just wanted to know what it was like to get inside a story like i think that was part of why i started writing songs in high school is because i i was it wasn't ever enough for me to just listen to a song and love it i then wanted to learn how to play that song on the guitar and then after that i was like but how, what's it like to write this song it's like i kept wanting to like look under the hood of the car and understand how, how this machine works and so I had loved books for so long and had tried writing novels and, and failed um, that the Wingfeather Saga was my attempt at just like kind of deciding one day that I've got to know what it feels like to to climb, to fight my way through the forest of a story and come out on the other side. And, uh, and it was like one of the most like uh, difficult and joy giving parts of my whole life was like uh, was seeing what would happen if I sat down and said, uh, how do I write a book that would make 12 year old Andrew the happiest, you know, and then to just kind of see what, what was on the other side. Like when it was finished, I looked back and I was like, Oh, there's all these, it's easy to see a lot of my own brokenness and my own longing, uh, wrapped in it in, in a way that I did not really intend. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I think that Jesus as the exemplar who, you know, there's a passage in, I think it's John that's where it says that he didn't say anything without using a parable. And so uh, stories seem to be the way, the language our hearts are wired to speak and the lens through which we, we understand life, the universe and everything. Yeah, that's great. And I, you know, I'm, my other geekism is music and I'm a musician too, and I'm a worship leader. And it was actually, you know, I, I had a time when the kind of music that I liked was whatever sounded the best, but it was really when I started to, delve into the the narratives within music and really appreciate songwriting as an art that it really got deeper for me and I've written some songs but uh, they're not good but um, I uh, I would really credit you and you know people like Rich Mullins with sort of inspiring that love of narrative and music in me too so I appreciate that about you and um, just while we're on the while we're talking so much about your story and your experience as a writer and learning to be a writer and putting yourself out there, it's probably worth mentioning Adorning the Dark too, in case people want to hear more about your story, right? Yeah. So I um, just released uh, a memoir called Adorning the Dark. That's uh, kind of a memoir. It's like a meditation on the creative process um, that also includes a lot of like principles that that I've that I've come to have strong opinions on about the writing life because I kind of like having been a, you know, we made a short film of the wing feather saga. We, you know, um, I've written these books and, and then made the records too. 
like a lot of the questions I get are about like, okay, how is writing a novel different from writing an album? And um, so I've been forced to think a lot about that. And there are a some serious differences. Like every medium has its own uh, pitfalls and and uh, the things about it that make it utterly unique. But there's also, in what I think is a really fascinating way, a ton of overlap um, between all creative uh, endeavors. And so whether you're writing a sermon or a song or cooking a meal or designing a flower bed, like there's this like, there's the, there are these guiding principles that I've begun to pick up on um, that are a part of all of them. And it, which leads me to the, the belief that I think that everyone on earth is inherently creative. It's one of the, one of my soapboxes is this thing where people refer to themselves as creatives. And I just think that's baloney. I, I'm, that's, <laughs> there is no certain class of people that are more creative than others. I, I think architects are just as creative as painters, uh, are just as creative as, as mathematicians and doctors, you know? Um, so I think that it's not helpful to think of some people as creative and other people as not, but rather to embrace like the inherent creativity in all of us, this, this ability that we all have to speak light into the darkness. Absolutely. That is all the questions I have. Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, man. I'm, I am thrilled that we got to talk about this. Like I, I'm, I, you guys may feel this too, but like there's sometimes when I, I start going off on the Lord of the Rings and you see the people's eyes glaze over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've had that experience. <laughs> so to talk to people that are actually way into it is a blast. So thank you guys. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time. That's it for today's show. Special thanks again to Andrew Peterson, author of the Wingfeather Saga, and of course to my co-host Daryl Smith for joining me today. Coming next week on the Story Geeks podcast, we are going to be diving even deeper into Lord of the Rings by getting into the specific characters and their journeys. So you don't want to miss out on that. Also, do not miss the giveaway. Daryl talked about the giveaway at the beginning of the show. Go to our Twitter account, The Story Geeks. It's easy to find us, The Story Geeks. And all you have to do is retweet our tweet promoting this show and his books, and you will be entered in our drawing to win the books, which would be fantastic. Don't miss any of our upcoming shows. Subscribe today on your preferred podcast provider. And don't forget to join the Story Geeks Facebook group and check out our VIP tiers. And if you want more information on the Story Geeks in general, check out thestorygeeks.com. Thanks for listening. And as always, question everything in your favorite geek stories and always seek the truth. Special thanks to all the members of the Story Geeks Club. Here are the awesome supporters who support us at $5 a month or more. Adam Vargas, Bob Sherfield, Justin Weaver, Mary Baldwin, Wade Johnson, Jim Baldwin, Monty Thigpen, Nick Prokop, and Connie Moe. We appreciate all the members of the Story Geeks Club, even those we haven't mentioned by name. If you would like to support the show by joining the Story Geeks Club and our VIP tiers, head over to thestorygeeks.com.